0: originally by Henry Light. Henry Light was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor. He pastored up in northern Scotland and pastored the same congregation for the bulk of his life. And as he entered the end of his ministry, he developed uh, a long-standing lung condition uh, to the point where he was prepping to take his life. And he preached his final sermon for his congregation. And after he preached his final sermon, he walked out to the sea. He sat on the, the shore and contemplated the end of his ministry in a congregation, and he contemplated the end of his life. And he penned those words. I think it was originally six stanzas. He penned them in the space of less than an hour, uh, just contemplating what it was like to live and to die in Christ. Now, if you've been around my ministry at all in the recent uh, years, last decade or so, I guess, you would know that, that hymn is actually kind of my life verse. That's my life stanza. Those are the things that capture my heart more than anything. And also, if you recognize my name, probably recognize it from your prayer guide, if you don't know me personally, uh, largely from October of 18 months ago, uh, where for me, that hymn almost became its reality, October 6th of 2021. Uh, I almost died of COVID, and the Lord did a miracle. Uh, I was in the hospital that entire month of October, but the first week particularly, they told my wife I had a 3% chance to live. They told me I had a 0% chance to live. And so I got to live those words every day for the better part of a week until I didn't die, and I didn't die, and I didn't die, and I'm firmly convinced the uh, single reason that I'm alive today is because of the prayers of the saints like you guys. The scriptures are very clear. It would have been better for me to kick off, right? It would have been better for me if the lungs had fully given out and I had passed into the life to come. But it was better for my family that I didn't, and it was better for my church that I didn't. And apparently today, for at least a day, it was better for you that I didn't. And so thank you for your prayers. Uh, You might not realize it, but I'm here because of you. And so I give you thanksgiving, and I give the Lord thanksgiving for you. I also bear the greetings of the Christ Ridge Presbyterian Church. We are just south of Charlotte. Uh, This Sunday actually marks my 15th year there. Uh, Weirdly enough, exactly this weekend. I left here just over 15 years ago, and they give their greetings to you. Uh, We celebrate uh, the Lord's kindness to us, His faithfulness in gospel ministry, and also uh, rejoice in being confessional Presbyterian churches together in this wonderful denomination. Now, I would encourage you and request that you take your copy of God's Word and that you turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 26, and I often make the reminder that because there is a divine author to Scripture, the Scriptures primarily are authored by the Holy Spirit, that when he wrote these, he had the original reading audience in mind, and he's had every Christian sense in mind, and even beyond that, he had you specifically today in mind so that when we come to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through the end of the chapter, we can say, this is God Almighty speaking to you, because he wrote this to you thousands of years ago. Hear God's word in Acts chapter 8. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Oh God, this is your word. It is perfect, right, good, and true. We are the problem. Would you take our weak faith and make it strong? Would you take our dirty hands and make them clean? Would you take our confused minds and make them clear? We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Now, some of you, I know, I recognize... Some of you maybe perhaps recognize me, maybe with a little bit extra weight and a little bit of a beard and some gray hair. It's a bit of a deception. I guess time gets us all. But some have no idea who I am and why I would be standing in this pulpit, and that's okay, I'm not mad at it. Uh, In fact, actually, March of 1999 was the first time I ever made my way to Carriage Lane. A youth pastor at the time called me down to join in Disciple Now, Uh, where I got to stay with Stalker and Jerry Reed and uh, teach a bunch of young men the Bible, one of whom was Josh Desch, my first interaction with him. That would then turn from just a Disciple Now weekend into four summers of interning in this church, which after a seminary career would bring me back for four years of youth pastoring. Uh, This is a church that I've been very blessed by to be a part of uh, for more than 20 years. Um, More than half my life has been spent with some sort of affiliation and connection Uh, to this church, which is a wonderful blessing to be a son of Carriage Lane and a recipient of her ministry. There is, however, one noticeable change when I came back today. It's not the fact that some of you are more gray than I am. It's not the fact that some of you are hiding that you're more gray than I am. Missing one very distinguished gentleman who I've always labored under in this place missing Doug. Wow. What's it like to be a part of Carriage Lane without Doug? What's it like to do a missions conference in a terribly mission-minded church? Missions is this church without Doug. And so today, I thought it would be appropriate for us to spend just a few minutes kind of contemplating what do missions look like in the middle of change? What do missions look like in the middle of a transition? What does missions look like in a church that I love dearly, that's been dear to my heart for almost 25 years? What can we learn from the Bible? Acts chapter 8 actually I think presents an intriguing story, real true story, that speaks to a moment kind of in church history that's not the same in, I guess, many ways, but not entirely dissimilar. Where we are in church history is Jesus has lived, he's died, he's been raised, he's ascended into glory, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and this group of duds called the disciples have suddenly found their like superhero clothes and have turned into the greatest men the church have ever seen. And the church has begun to grow and has begun to flourish in a way that no one would have guessed just five years prior. Suddenly, we're beginning to see men live as the godly men they're called to be. We've been watching the women do that all along, honestly. The guys were just a little slow to catch up. And we're watching the church flourish. But even as the church flourishes, there's persecution from all sides and from inside and out. You have uh, theological controversies that are uh, bothering the church from the inside. You have church discipline bothering the church from the inside. You have murders coming from the outside. And now, uh, if you were to turn back just a previous chapter, we have the introduction of a gentleman who would later be famous to us as Paul, the great persecutor of the church the great evil one against the church, the great murderer of the church, the most probably educated man on the planet who has the zeal to match and is determined to execute Christ's church. And it's in the midst of that kind of backdrop of growth mixed with difficulty that this one kind of spectacular figure... (laughs) is introduced just briefly for just a few short chapters in the Bible. A gentleman named Philip. We don't have his whole story. We don't know every single thing about him, but we do know that he's a pretty special guy. Uh, They've just had a bit of kind of church controversy where uh, they've had a a gripe between, um, in the widows, between the Jews and, and the Greeks, and he was made one of the first deacons. He's also one of the very few men that we see that's not an apostle or an elder, that is given all of the full gifts of an apostle and elder. And if you were to turn to the beginning of chapter 8, you begin to see that Philip is, at this point in church history, the single most effective evangelist on the planet. You go back if you're in your ESV, uh, chapter 8, verse 4, gives you the helpful little heading, Philip proclaims Christ in Samaria. What's happened is with the persecution that's come to the church, the church is kind of scattered and Philip has gone to the people that nobody would like. He's gone to the country that nobody would like. In fact, he's gone to one of the single most hated places on the planet for Jews and has begun to preach the word, verse 4. Verse 5, it's begun to reach the cities. Verse 6, it's begun to have effect. And there is so much joy, the entire country is being transformed. This is by every metric, every kind of human standard, every kind of imaginable, measurable thing. Philip is the greatest minister in the church at the moment which is amazing because he's not an apostle and he's not an elder. He's a deacon. And he's the most effective. You're watching those that do not know Christ come to know Christ and you're watching it happen in such great numbers that the world is being changed. In fact, he actually has to go back to Jerusalem at one point to get uh, help. He gets Peter and John to come back and be like, hey, look, I know the Jews hate the Samaritans, but seriously, I got to have help. There's too many new Christians. I don't know what to do with it. Thousands of people have been transformed. And that's an important backdrop because when we get to verse 26, something amazing happens. The angel of the Lord we only see show up four times in the book of Acts. The angel of the Lord shows up and says, what if you're honest about church history has to be one of the things you would think would be the dumbest sentences ever said. Except for God said it. And that can't be dumb because God's not dumb. The angel of the Lord says to Philip, keep preaching in Samaria. No, that's not what he says. Angel of the Lord says, hey, you know what? Get more teammates. Build a better leadership network. No, that's not what he says. Go plant churches. No, that's not what he says. In what had to have been one of the most baffling experiences, the angel of the Lord appears to Philip and says, hey, you need to get up and go to the absolute middle of the boonies. You need to go to the middle of nowhere. There are two roads, we know this very well, that lead from Jerusalem to Gaza. There's one that, let's see if I can do this backwards for you, one from Jerusalem to Gaza that is uh, the northern route that was very popular. It was um, uh, was paved well. It was a very well-traveled road. There was, however, a second one that largely went, again, see if I can do this backwards, down through the hills. I remember Jerusalem's in the hills, down through the hills, and then would cut and go through wild territory. It was the road through the middle of nowhere. It's beyond the scenic route. It's the route that no one travels. It's longer, it's less safe, it's less easy to travel. It's the road no one uses. And so interestingly, what you have in verse 26 is God Almighty telling the most effective preacher in the world to leave his ministry and go into the middle of the boonies. And I love that. Like, I love to think about how your average PCA church would handle that. Right? Your missions committee would be having a fit we got to go where God goes. we got to go where God's working. You're the, mo- you're the best guy we got. we got to put you in, in front of as many people as possible. We've got to give you as many preaching opportunities as possible. We've got to give you every opportunity to use your unique gifts because you're the best we have. And we would be wrong. Because interestingly, what does God want? He wants them to go to the boonies. And I think actually this is probably our first kind of place where we have to wrestle a little bit with the text. Because this is a part that doesn't fit my natural emotional bent. It doesn't fit the way I like to think. It doesn't fit the way that makes me feel good. I like to be able to evaluate decisions with my eyes. Not with my faith. You see what we're actually learning in the text here, our first kind of major principle is that God is far more concerned with obedience than he is with success. God's far more concerned with obedience than he is with success. Again, by every metric that we would have to measure, everything that we could use our eyes or our ears to kind of quantify, Philip is the best success in the church at this time. And interestingly, the Lord is more intrigued in him obeying God than he is in continuing his ministry. Now, does that say we don't want conversions? No. Does that mean that we don't want preachers who preach in front of large crowds? No. Does that mean that we don't want the churches to grow? No. Does that mean we don't want churches to be planted? No. It means all of those things have to become secondary to the primary thing. That when we evaluate what it means to be a success as a church, as a denomination, as an individual Christian, our single captivating definition has to be obedience. Am I consumed with obeying my God? Some of you know that when the Lord called me away from this church, it was to revitalize a church that was struggling. The previous pastor had had very public moral failings, he'd been excommunicated by the presbytery, and the church had dropped down, dwindled down to 18 members. Uh, They had no people, they had no money, the only thing they owned was a little bit of land with a, a prefabricated trailer on it and a massive amount of debt. I walked into my first session meeting after leaving this church where everything was stable and healthy and good and my first session meeting, they told me, I hope you're a good preacher because we only have enough money to pay you for six months. You better preach yourself into a salary. Nikki gave birth about three weeks later, um, which was in no way stressful. (laughs) The Lord's been faithful to our church, but we found this kind of running theme in the back of our minds, which has been, we will be successful when we are able to do this. We, we will be, we'll, we'll made it, we will have made it when we're able to do this. At first, it was able to pay me, which I like that goal. I, I was supportive of it, and it was a thing that was important to me. And then it was able to make our mortgage payments on the massive amount of debt that we had. And then one day when we were able to kind of start thinking a little bigger, one of my elders or, a wonderful World War II cryptographer, an old vet I miss dearly. He looked like one of the old Muppets from back in the show. And he would say, All, when we get a church van, that's when we'll know we've made it. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't think you're right, Stu, but okay. <laughs> when we're able to do this, then we'll know we're a success. And the challenge is, doing missions in the middle of transition, doing missions with the looming massive shadow of Doug Griffith behind me, is that we've lost in some sense in this sweet place some of the efficiency that Doug brought and some of the stability that Doug brought and some of the affection that Doug brought and some of the peace that Doug brought. And it would be so easy for us to say, this church has to regain those things in order to be a success. This church has to have our missions increase, our giving has to increase in order to be a success, or this church has to reclaim some of that in order to be a success. And friends, that's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. This church needs to be faithful and obedient. And that's it. That's it. That's it. That's the whole target. That's that's the whole story. That's the whole task is just obey with the circumstances that God puts in front of you. Just obey with the difficulties that God puts in front of you. Just obey with the successes that God puts in front of you. Just obey. Just obey. Now, is it because we obey in order to get good standing before him? No. We just sang that, didn't we? Our craving is that he would abide with us, that he would dwell with us, that he would dwell in us, and as a result, obedience would be the outpouring of our love. It's so easy for us to reduce our definition of success to size, to reduce our definition of success to some sort of kind of moving target of relevancy in our current culture. It's so easy for us to reduce our definition of success to using the resources that God has provided in front of us. It's so easy to reduce our definition of success to some sort of kind of external metric Instead of just saying, look, my task is to just obey the Lord. And as long as I've done that, well, that's a win. We get to see, I think, probably a second thing that's going to explain why that makes sense. Because realistically, it it kind of goes against our American kind of cultural conscience. We, We don't like that because we want to be able to say the proof is in the pudding. We are the great meritocracy of world history. That's what our nation is, is the greatest meritocracy in world history. If you work hard and have gifts, you can do whatever you want. The greatest meritocracy ever. And that's leached into the church where we say, okay, well, if we're going to be a great church, we have to do great things. Wrong. Well, what do we see in the text? Philip sent down into the middle of absolute nowhere. He's sent to the boonies, and so he does. He leaves Jerusalem. Now, he's had to travel uh, 50, 75 miles to get to this place. He's had to travel the length of Israel uh, to get down to this, and then now catches the road that leads out uh, from Jerusalem back toward the shore to Gaza. That way, I guess backwards. and I always get them wrong. And interestingly, as he travels... We get to see, it's introduced, this kind of mysterious figure, (laughs) Uh, what an interesting character, Uh, an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. We have introduced this gentleman who is this marvelously kind of mysterious figure in church history. Candace is the queen mother of uh, the king of Ethiopia at the time. He was a little boy and was a uh, you know not able to rule the country yet himself. He had not grown into a proper age, and as a result, the queen mother was running the country. Candace is the queen mother. She has sent her right hand man, who was probably the gentleman who managed her former husband's deceased husband's uh, harem. He was the gentleman and is in charge of all of the wives. I don't know. Maybe she didn't like him and needed to get rid of him. I'm not sure. But she's sent him on a trip uh, where he's been able to travel from Ethiopia all the way up to Jerusalem. This gentleman is exceptionally well-educated. We know he's fluent in Greek. We're going to see that in just a moment. Uh, And we know that he was exceptionally powerful because he was in charge of the treasury. This is not kind of some kind of like right-hand henchman uh, to the queen, right? This is not her kind of Quiet resident assassin, uh, think this is kind of what we would think of maybe as like the chief of state, one of her greatest cabinet members. This is one of the most powerful men from a very powerful country, who interestingly is Jewish in some fashion. Now, not Jewish by nationality, he would have been recognized, his skin color would have been f- most likely a very different uh, tone uh, than what the gentleman Philip is uh, carrying in himself, and instead would be marked as something kind of unique and different. But interestingly, as he is a Jew, he's traveled up to Jerusalem in order to engage the Jewish God. Now, for most of us, we think, oh, well, how sweet. Like, he's traveled all the way, you know, from Ethiopia all the way up Africa, again, backwards, all the way up Africa to get to uh, Israel in order to worship. But there's some really intriguing things, actually, to think about is that, first off, he's a eunuch. So even when he went to Jerusalem to go to worship, guess where he was not allowed to go? Into the temple at all. He's damaged. This man is damaged goods. His biology has been altered in a way that would mark him unclean permanently. This is a man who would never be able to be in God's presence at all. He couldn't permanently unclean. But even as he does go into Jerusalem, unable to worship the living and true God in the temple, he would have had to stand outside in one of the kind of outside covered pavilions in order to worship. We do know that he was uh, well enough off that he bought a portion of the Scriptures. We know exactly what he bought. He bought a scroll of Isaiah. It was in the Greek. This is the Septuagint. We know because it has a really weird textual variant. And interestingly, he quotes the variant. So we know exactly what he's reading, a portion of the Septuagint in the Greek. And what we see is this just wonderful interchange in the middle of nowhere between a guy who's trying to figure out the Scriptures. Now, pause for a moment think again. How interested is this eunuch in the Bible? He's reading it as he travels by chariot, which has no shock system. Now, some of you, I would imagine, have some serious issues with motion sickness. A little tricky to do. That's reading in a car that has a exceptionally sophisticated kind of, you know, to balance things out. How quickly do you think this guy's probably traveling? Not. Nah. In fact, actually, he's traveling so not quickly that a gentleman on foot is able to overtake him. Right? Dude's walking from Jerusalem is like, hey, there's a chariot way down there. I wonder what that is, and goes, you know, hoofs it, and the spirit tells him to go. What you have is a gentleman who is so intrigued in the scriptures that he's intentionally taking the slow road back home. He's intentionally taking the road where nobody's going to be, where nobody's going to bother him, where nobody's going to interrupt him so that he can read the Bible, so that he can read Isaiah. And as he reads it, he's confused and bewildered and unable to understand what's going on. Until God does something spectacular. Provides Philip. Now, again, remember where we started. Philip's a new deacon. And is, as we know, a Greek by nature. Provides, actually, interestingly, one of the very few church officers who is skilled in the language that the Ethiopian knows. In fact, actually is not even a Hebrew speaker, Aramaic speaker. They bring the guy who's fluent in the language that he's reading. Like this is the most like spectacular arrangement of coincidences you could possibly imagine. You have a guy who happens to be reading the Bible also happens to be reading one of the most obviously overtly Christological passages in the entirety of the Old Testament, happens to be reading it out loud because he's from a culture that says if you read it out loud, you'll remember it, but if you read it quietly, you'll forget. So they did all of their reading out loud and happens to have a church officer who happens to be the most skillful evangelist in the church, who happens to be fluent in the language that he's reading, who happens to be directly behind his actual chariot. boy, that's lucky, isn't it? No, in fact, actually, that's the exact point that uh, Luke is making here, is that it, none of this is lucky. What we're actually seeing is the logical, like, the logical consequence of the previous point. Look, if the Lord is more preoccupied with obedience than he is with success, it would make sense that would flow from the idea that God's in charge of it all in the first place. That God is sovereign over all of the ways and days of all of his creatures. He's sovereign over sending the eunuch home in the middle of nowhere. He's sovereign over taking Philip on a path that no one in their right mind would ever travel. He's sovereign over which portion of the scriptures would be read. He's sovereign over which language they speak. He's sovereign over the entire interchange. Our God is in control. God is in control. And I think that's, again, probably an important thing for us to remember as we think about missions in transition. It would have been important for them to think about because you have to think Philip would have been wondering, like, God, what are you doing? Like, I got like a thousand new converts back home. Where are you sending me? Why, why here? For one guy. Like, honestly, just be realistic. How many of us would, would agree with that math? A thousand new converts back in Samaria or one guy on the way back to Ethiopia. I mean, if we're going to be honest, most of us, I, I, really, if we're really truthful, I don't think anybody in this room would have the courage to choose the one. None of us would. Every one of us would send on that one. But yet, interestingly, God is showing he's sovereign over all of salvation. He's sovereign over all of creation. He's sovereign over all of his creatures. He does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with whomever he wants. He is in charge. Now, the problem with this is that as Reformed folk, this is a doctrine that we do like to talk about. But we really like to talk about it for others and not for ourselves. Right? This is my favorite kind of doctrine. The kind of doctrine that makes you behave but never actually touches my heart at all. It's the kind of doctrine that I can use against you. Well, I mean, obviously the Lord gave you that, but then never really impacts me. You see, the first kind of point that we look at it, it emphasizes this kind of faithfulness element. But this idea, this second point of understanding God's sovereignty kind of presents almost a contentment element. So that when we are doing ministry in the midst of transition, when we're doing ministry in the midst of pain, we can say our God has not made a mistake. This is not a surprise to him. It's not a shock. He didn't wake up one day and be like, whoa, when did that happen? How did that, what? what? What's going on there? How did that happen in Georgia? How did that happen in South Carolina? How did that happen in Virginia? What is going on? I love that. I mean, so many of us, we spend so much of our lives asking that question. Like, what is happening right now? Every time we watch the news, turn on social media. What is going on? Our God doesn't ask that question because it's not a mystery to him. It's not a surprise to him. In fact, actually, we would go even one step further to say it was designed by him. In fact, we could even go one step further in some of our applications to say for some of you in the room, you're, you're dealing with a season of great trial. Friends, he's ordained that for your good. Some of us are dealing through a season of great pain, and I would say, friends, he's ordained that for your good. Some of us are in a season of great joy, and I would say, friends, he's ordained that for your good because he loves you. None of it is a mistake. I think at Reform Camp, we tend to excel in talking about his sovereignty for kind of the big picture category things, but I perhaps would suggest a lot of times we forget when it comes to talk about design, that all of the experience I've had and all the experiences you have are designed for your good and for his glory. All right, well, we'll keep moving and think, okay, well, so if this God is more concerned with faithfulness than he is with success, and if he's more concerned with kind of us understanding that he's in charge of all of it, what does obedience look like? That's a great question, isn't it? If he's more concerned with my obedience than anything else for me, And if he's the one in charge of the whole thing, what does obedience look like? Well, I love it. You get verse 29. Philip's walking, sees the chariot kind of in the distance. The Holy Spirit says to him, go, go join this chariot. So Philip runs up, gets close to this kind of procession. It was probably a a fairly significant thing with a little bit of pomp and circumstance. Doesn't just hop right up on the chariot because that would be probably a really easy way to end your life. Uh, instead, he probably runs alongside, and here's the gentleman reading it out loud. And in what has to be kind of a bit of a socially awkward question, it's like, uh, hey, brother, you know what you're reading? Like, that making any sense to you? Um, uh, he asks it in a way it's well-received. Uh, you get kind of a sense of camaraderie that follows. Do you understand what you're reading? And the gentleman responds, the eunuch responds, how am I supposed to understand this? How, how am I supposed to figure out what is going on here? This portion of Isaiah is talking about a gentleman, but it's never identified who it is. Is Isaiah talking about himself? Is he talking about someone else? In fact, now scholarship calls it the suffering servant. Who is that? And interestingly, what you see from verse 32 through following to the end of the chapter is a wonderful series of little object lessons of what obedience looks like. Verse 32 And 33, they read the Bible. Verse 35, they explain the Bible. Verse 36, they act on the Bible. And they confess the Bible. It's interestingly, what you actually watch happen in verse 32 and following is just the means of grace. It's interestingly the exact same things that this church has been doing every Sunday in and out and in and out and in and out and in and out for 30-something years. What does obedience look like? You read the Bible. You sing the Bible. You pray the Bible. You obey the Bible. You see the Bible in the sacraments. It's all about the means of grace. It's all about just being obedient to God's holy commands. It's all about those means that God himself has ordained for his church to use. Again, telling the story of the church I pastor now and coming in and it was 18 people. I was the membership my first Sunday was 18 folks and um, those 18 folks were unbearably wounded. The previous pastor had lied the entire way through his excommunication process. It was absolutely dreadful. So we had 18 broken people with a mountain of debt and trying to figure out, okay, well, w- what do we do? What, what are we going to be as a church, right? If we're going to define kind of our success externally, there, well, there's none of that. There's nothing that we can kind of use as a metric to say we're successful. We're in debt. We have no money. We have a pastor who has no idea what he's doing. We have people who have no idea what they're doing in a church that's not growing, in a community that kills churches. Weirdly enough, our little spot outside of Charlotte is like aggressively just kills churches. In the 15 years I've been there, I think we've watched 8 or 10 conservative Presbyterian type churches die within 6 miles of us. You can't get one to grow. Nothing can grow. It is stony soil. And so what the elders and I determined is that we would, as best we could, do this. Every morning, in the evenings when we could, during the week when we could, whenever the people were able, we would do this. Word, sacrament, prayer, and fellowship. That would be it. Because honestly, friends, it's really hard to look at a church of 18 people knowing you've got this massive mortgage payment due in just a couple of weeks and think this is a success in any way. Because by human metrics, it's not. But by God's, it might be. Because in fact, in, interestingly, the, the task before us, word, Sacrament, prayer, and fellowship. And interestingly, those things are things that survive missions conferences in the midst of transition, aren't they? We've already heard that in Sunday school, haven't we? Word, sacrament, prayer, and fellowship taking place in Peru and in France taking place through ELI all over the world, largely in Africa. Word, sacrament, prayer, and fellowship. I appreciate that the story doesn't just end with this kind of of climactic conversion. But you have in verse 39 (laughs) what had to have been slightly disorienting. They've walked down into the watering hole. It's probably a, a pool where water has collected. It's almost certainly not very deep. This is one of those passages that gives our Baptist brothers and sisters a bit of difficulty because this road has no actual water on it. So it's probably, it's one of the, the very little bit of rains. They've wandered down into this pool. He's almost certainly baptized. And as they step out of it, you have this great moment where the eunuch steps out and he turns around and Philip's just Gone where did you go, man? And Philip comes to, he's 50 miles north in Azotus. And interestingly, what he does from Azotus is he preaches his way all the way back home to Caesarea, where he's got four daughters who are waiting for him, who are all prophesying in their own right. Very weird story, but that's what happens. The Lord just, poof, he's gone. Been taken 50 miles to the north, and he's got now at this point a 200-mile walk home or whatever as he walks to Caesarea. And interestingly, what's his task as he does? Preached the gospel all the way until he got home. I love that. Preached the gospel all the way until he was taken home. As a minister of the gospel, that's probably a good task, isn't it? Just preach the gospel all the way until you're taken home. That Henry Light hymn we just sang. But now for you, just briefly, I'll end with this application. The wonderful thing about a a passage like this, and the wonderful thing I hope you see about a sermon like this, is that it is not a sermon that is reliant on your teaching elders. It's not a sermon that's reliant on your pastors, and it's not a sermon that's actually even reliant upon your session. Your task is to be obedient. Your task is to be obedient because God is sovereign over the entirety of his church. And the way that he's told you to be obedient is in the word and the sacraments and prayer and in fellowship. Because weirdly, one of those things that I've actually had to learn, and this is where I started, is that I'm the easiest one to replace in my church. I know that because I had a weird bout of COVID and almost died and then we had to watch that happen. But you can't replace the word. You can't replace the spirit. And you cannot replace the Son of God. And those are things that actually continue day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. So what's your task? Carriage Lane Presbyterian Church, on Missions Sunday, what's your task? Is to fall in love with the Son of God as seen in the Scriptures so that you would be able to sing in some fashion those words of abide with me with that greater longing that we long for Christ to be with us, that we might be equipped to tell his story to whomever those people are, the nations, which interestingly have been brought to Peachtree City now, a bit different than when I left, something that you can do and not just send it to the ends of the earth. Let's pray.